Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. Now, as I said in our last episode of In Conversation, over the summer, I am going to be taking the opportunity of this offseason to talk to people in the sporting world who might not necessarily be directly Ohio State related before we get back into the swing of things with football and basketball and other Buckeye coverage in another month or two. So today, I am talking with sports journalist and author Jeremy Fuchs about his new book, Total Olympics. This great reference book recalls both the familiar and lesser known anecdotes from the games, forgotten moments, untold stories, and the fascinating people who achieved Olympic glory and Olympic shame, and sometimes both, over the Olympics' rich and controversial history. And don't worry, as is my want, I do get some Ohio State mixed into the conversation as we discuss the legacy of Buckeye great Jesse Owens. We will have a link to purchase this fantastic book in the show notes and in the article version of the episode at landgrantholyland.com. I cannot recommend it more highly for all sports fans out there. So with all of that now out of the way, here's my conversation with Jeremy Fuchs. Jeremy, I, I really love this book. The, the nerd in me kind of geeks oh, out you. at this because... Well, the way you've organized this book, I mean, you have all of these stories and facts about like the most historic and the weirdest and the most interesting and the funniest and the tragic things that have happened at or I guess because of of the Olympics. I, I wonder what about the games compelled you to have to do what I imagine is just an extensive amount of research to collect, you know, over a centuries of history and stories and a lot of things that seem kind of obscure, and I'm not exactly sure how you found them, uh, into one book. Yeah, you know, it, it was certainly a bit of an undertaking, um, but in a good way. I mean, for me, you know, the Olympics are obviously an amazing sporting event, and, but more than anything, what attracts me to it is the fact that it's an amazing sort of human event. You know, it's really the only opportunity really, you know, in a global setting where you get all these different countries, all these different cultures, all these different people, you know, all these sports that you really don't get a chance to see, you know, most of the time, with the exception of a few. And you kind of come together and mash them up for two weeks every few years. And so for me, I sort of looked at it as like, yes, this is an amazing sporting event. And there's some sports and some moments that are, you know, everyone knows and have to be in the book. And I also took the idea of, there's just so many stories over hundreds of years of all these countries yeah. and all these people and all these sports. And I really wanted to find the things that, you know, I didn't know about, or maybe I only knew about in passing. Um, and when you really dig deep into the history of the Olympics, I mean, there's just some amazing things. Some of them, like you said, are plain hilarious. Some of them are very tragic. Um, and I think it's because it's a human event. It's a cultural thing that humans take part in. And when you put, you know, all these humans together in a space, things are going to happen. Some of them good, some of them not so good, some of them funny, some of them sad. Um, and so I, that's how I approach the book is trying to find the human element of all these stories. And I think for me, the Olympics was really just the perfect vehicle to be able to do that. 
Yeah, and I think we know some of the bigger, you know, stories about uh, the human side of of these things, whether it's a, you know, a big thing like the the, the raising of the fist or if it's, you know, a small thing like Carrie mm-hmm. Strug. But for you, what was the story that maybe in your research seemed to kind of jump out and really uh, either touch you or affect you or surprise you that you didn't know about going in? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a number of them. But for me, the one I keep coming back to is a story from the early 1900s. Um, I think the key thing to remember first is that the early Olympics, you know, from the 1896, the first games to really like the 1940s, they were a mess. Um, You know, we're used (laughs) to seeing the Olympics as this very organized, well-oiled machine. Everything is timed to the second. You know, nothing ever seemingly goes wrong. Uh, That was not the case in the early days. In fact, Things going right was the exception. Um, it took them a while <laughs> to kind of find their footing. Um, and the early days have, I think, a lot of the funniest stories and also the way that humans and life sort of works out some of the, I think, most touching stories. And so for me, this goes back to 1912. The games were in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, and the story of a, of a marathon runner from Japan named Shizo Kanakuri. Uh, he was Japan's top runner. Um, you know, he was their guy. Um, he, there was a claim that he set a marathon world record. Um, that's kind of hard to verify given that it was 1912, but um, he was the guy. As so he gets to Sweden, you know, first he has to travel by boat, right, from Japan. And yeah. he's got to take this long boat ride and train ride. I mean, you know, this was not like a quick five-hour flight here. He gets to Sweden. Race day is incredibly hot. Uh, many of the races actually bowed out halfway through the race because of the heat. Um, Kanakuri was no exception. He was really struggling. He was having some, you know, he was going in and out of consciousness. He was probably dehydrated. Um, and in his sort of, you know, stupor, his dehydrated stupor, he kind of veers off the course and ends up in the backyard of a local family who was having like a party, like a birthday party or something. And he sort of hangs out there. <laughs> um, and he has some, he has some juice. Um, there's some mixed reports about whether he actually stayed over, which is possible, but he definitely took a nap at some point there. Um, and then he gets up and he leaves. He goes back to Japan. He doesn't finish the race. He's like, I'm done. And that was it. He lived his life. He, um, he qualified for the 1916 Olympics. Those were canceled due to the war. He competed in the 1920 Olympics. He competed in the 1924 Olympics. He was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, to Swedish authorities though, they thought he was missing. They had no idea where he was. To them, he had completely gone off the map, literally. Not the fact that he went home. They had no idea where he was. He was officially a missing person. Um, And he was a missing person for 50 years. Um, (laughs) Despite the fact that he had gone on to live this life and be in the Olympics and be still an athlete. It took until 1967, uh, a Swedish television program found him and sort of gave him, and this is the part that I think is so cool, it gave him a chance to finish the run. And so... You know, he came back 50 years later um, and finished the race in a record, I guess, of some sort of 54 years, eight months, six days, five hours, 32 <laughs> minutes and 20.3 seconds. Yeah, it's the 20.3 seconds that really makes it there. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, that's I mean, there's so many stories in this book. And, and I mentioned it at the top, like. I love the way you organize it because, I mean, it it really is like a reference book 
with these great sections of like, and I would imagine that stories from the wild and strange uh, section. I, uh-huh. I, it's just there's so many um, amazing things. One of the things that I thought was was kind of interesting as I was going through is that it seems like you don't actually have to be all that good of an athlete to make the Olympics. In fact, in some cases, you can be downright bad and still make a team depending on the sport in the country. You can. We've seen this in history. We've seen this recently. It was sort of a controversy in the 2018 games. Um, an athlete by the name of Elizabeth Sweeney, an American athlete, ends up competing in the women's half pipe and skiing um, for Hungary, um, you know, where she has relatives. She couldn't really ski. She could kind of go up and do a little jump, and but she was able to get in because of sort of the weird way that qualifying worked. You know, there was the famous story of Eric Musambani, um, who didn't know how to swim and then qualified. Um, <laughs> he qualified oh, and then he learned. They called him Eric the Eel um, back in 2000. There's some weird, especially in the smaller countries, you know, Eric Musambani was from Equatorial Guinea. Um, you know, there's some ways to get uh, into the system. You don't have to be a good athlete. Obviously, you're not going to win. Um, and I think there's some people who understandably think it's a bit of a mockery, right? I mean, here's people who don't, you know, if you don't know how to swim, you obviously shouldn't be in the Olympics, right? That's pretty fair to say. But at the same time, you know, this is not somebody who didn't know how to swim because like he wasn't working hard. He was trying. Um, and I think, you know, he was trying to do his best and they were all trying to do their best and trying to represent their country. And I think there's something interesting and something sort of, you know, admirable about that. You know, I think yeah. we can make fun of it and say, oh my God, he can't swim. But, it, you know, you try going to an Olympic pool and swimming against, you know, world-class athletes. It's not, you know, you're going to look funny. You're going to embarrass yourself to some extent, but you're also going to show great determination and to keep trying. Um, and, you know, he now, you know, Musambani is now the coach of the national swimming team. Um, oh, wow. And I think there is a, there is, I think, a respect to be had for these people, even though, as athletes, they're not very good. Yeah, I, well, I the, one of the stories in the book, and I've actually seen the movie based off of of the Eddie the Eagle story. Where like you can't yep. not admire the guy. He was not a very good ski jumper. In fact, he was probably pretty bad. Um, but that's a sport you don't just do in like you know, you're it's swimming. You, you got a lifeguard there to help you. Like if you're going to ski jump and you're going to dedicate yourself to trying to be actually halfway decent at it, like there's a legitimate shot that you're going to break bones or even worse. And yet this guy yep. continued to go out and do it. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, and I, you know, it's a great movie and it's a great story. And he was so popular at Eagle in those games because of that. Ski jumping is not a sport that you can just go and do. I mean, first you have to know how to ski. Second, I mean, you're going down, you know, as far as far as far as 100 meters, 160, 170 meters in some cases. Like, you know, you try doing that. No, <laughs> um, absolutely Atlanta, not. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's incredibly dangerous to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And, you know, he kept trying. And I think we sort of forget about the trying part of it. You know, we're... We're looking for the athletes who win, the athletes who are dominant, and those are obviously amazing stories. But, you know, you got to give credit to the people who are want to be in the Olympics so bad, they want to represent their country so badly that this is they're willing to do anything, including risk, you know, major injury. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned we obviously know the stories of the people who win and who do historic things, and we are an Ohio State um, website. So, of course, I have to talk about one of the school's most 
iconic legends and alums, Jesse Owens. And despite all of the success that he had um, in Germany and, you know, I guess some initial, you know, good things happened when he came back to the States. But like for a long time, he did not get the respect and reverence that we have for him now when he was still alive and kind of trying to make his way in the world after coming back from the games. Yeah, he does this amazing accomplishment, right, in Berlin in 1936. And not only does he, first of all, just put on an athletic display that's, that's really kind of not been matched, um, you know, in many ways. He wins four gold medals, 100 meters, 200 meters, wins the long jump, um, wins the relay. Not only does he do that, he does it in the face of the specter of sort of white supremacy, of the Nazis giving, you know, trying to give their worldview onto the world stage. And here he comes and just sort of, for a lot of people, very visually, you know, tears that to shreds. He comes back to America, you would think this is somebody who's going to be the biggest star in the world. And, you know, he doesn't even get invited to the White House. And so, you know, he comes back and he does this thing. First of all, an incredible athletic accomplishment, an incredible human accomplishment. And, you know, he had trouble finding work. He worked as a, in a gas station as a janitor. Uh, you know, he, had, he was sort of forced to race against amateurs and against horses to make money. Um, you know, I, there's a quote in the book. He said, you know, I had four gold medals, but you can't eat four gold medals. Um, and yeah. so I think it was very emblematic of the state of America for African-Americans in 1936 and all the way forward. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's weird. It's, on the one hand, it's just an incredibly inspiring story, right? I mean, everybody sort of, and obviously the movie came out fairly recently and, you know, Jesse Owens is a no name in at Ohio State. Um, but I think we have to remember the legacy of him coming home and not getting gold medal treatment. I mean, he got the worst of the worst. So we are, you know, it's, it's a, it's a blot on, you know, our, our country certainly. And on, it's unfortunate because if he did this today, there would be no bigger star in the world than Jesse Owens. Um, and his doing it in 1936 meant a whole different experience for him. Well, and you, you say in that section uh, of the book that like, this was perhaps the first time where people really had to deal with the fact that the, Olympic games were political and you mentioned it at the top when you know you have all these countries coming together for really the only time in a four-year period that there are things that that are going on beyond just the sport just the athletics um, of these events and we've seen that play out over time I mean pretty much since um, uh, those games that you can't separate the politics from the sports and the Olympics for better or for worse. And as much as the Olympic committee tries to do that, there really just is no way to separate those two different factors of what's going on at the games. No, you can't. I think the Olympics and the organizers would like you to believe that this is a sort of kumbaya moment for the world. And we all come together. I mean, I think, I guarantee you at this year's opening ceremony, someone is going to reimagine by John Lennon. It happens every time. Um, oh God, and, I mean, Yoko Ono read it one year. I mean, this is something that happens all the time. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that it's just not the case. Um, the Olympics are a political event. Uh, you think, for, and, and it happens in every component. I mean, to the bidding of having to host the Olympics has become something where now 
it's a showcase for a country. I mean, think back to 2008, the games were in Beijing for the first time in China. And every broadcaster was saying something to the effect of, you know, this is China's chance to show itself on the world stage, right? Um, you know, you heard that with Russia, uh, with Brazil, um, you know, you're going to hear it over and over again. Um, they're becoming unpopular, <laughs> these hosting events. You know, the Japanese mm-hmm. public is, for many reasons, obviously a lot of it having to do with the pandemic, but this was the case before, not happy with having um, the Olympics. They're incredibly expensive. Um, the resources and the things that are built are, in many cases, worthless afterwards. Um, and then you get on the layer of, right, countries are competing against each other, right? I mean, the miracle on ice is the biggest example, I think, of a political win. I mean, that was almost a victory in the Cold War for the U.S. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a hockey game. (laughs) It was a lot more than that. And it remains, you know, that to this day in sort of, you know, cultural lore. So, yeah, the the Olympics are political. um, And I think we need to do a better job of recognizing that and acknowledging that and say like, yeah, the sports are awesome. You know, we love seeing these competitions. It's great to see all these, you know, people from around the world competing. That's awesome. But it's also a political event where there are political decisions and there are political outcomes being made every moment. Well, okay, that's the heavy stuff. We've talked about the the, the the racism in the country after Jesse Owens returns and all the political stuff, but there is some there's so much fun stuff in here. So I want to talk about a few of those real quick before we wrap up. I love I think my favorite part of the book is going through all of the different sports that have been in at least one games and then like jettisoned because they're ridiculous like firefighting or running Mm -hmm. deer or plunge for distance the mixed paintings the tug of war like there are so many things that you're just like why in the hell was that included um and yet somebody somewhere has an olympic gold medal based off of these absurd games oh yeah and it's primarily in the early days of the olympics like i said earlier this is a was a very chaotic enterprise and so they were trying things out but you're right there is somebody often in many cases in america that has these random gold medals you know take the example of club swinging um (laughs) it's literally one of those sort of like circus clubs that you played with in gym class that you swing and that's a sport yeah and the americans dominated i mean dominated they it was in two games the americans won all six medals like (laughs) (laughs) that is what are you going to do with that gold medal? I mean, from in one sport, it's so odd. I mean, they had tandem bicycle riding, like, you know, they have, like, you know, they had, I think you mentioned it before. This is my favorite Olympic sport of all time. It's called plunge for distance. Yeah. The idea is very simple. You dive into the pool and see how far you go. No movement. <laughs> you just float. Yeah. Like, well, I, and I love the quote. And I don't know if I can find it real quick. The the quote you have in that section is like from the, I don't know, the New York Times or something about like, it's really just like the heaviest dude just falls as far like gravity and momentum just takes the heaviest object and takes it to the bottom of the pool. Yeah. And, you know, the way that, you know, newspapers covered many things in the early 1900s was it was so colorful. And so yeah, the quote is that is favored uh, mere mountains of fat who fall on the water more or less successfully and depend upon inertia to get their points for them. <laughs> yeah. That's much better than the way I, I said mean, it, but that's hilarious. Be, yeah. But like, that's where it is. The heavier you are, the farther you go. 
Oh, and, goodness. you know, the Olympics, you know, like I said, really were a mess in the beginning. They were trying a lot of things out. Obviously, a lot of them weren't successful. Some things did stick. Um, we see this today where they're trying to put in new sports every four years. They're a little bit more mainstream, but not that much more. I mean, you know, there's breakdancing is coming in. We're going to have speed climbing, you know, in a few months. Um, you know, whenever there's an Olympics, there's going to be somebody who wants something funky in there. And um, yeah. some years it's going to happen. And we get to uh, now we get to see it, actually. You know, we can never see plunge for distance, but we can finally see some of these wacky sports. Um Thank God for the NBC family of networks. Um, so <laughs> a couple other things here before we wrap up, like I, I loved kind of the stories of like famous people that competed in the Olympics, but we don't know them as athletes. Like I think there was like general Patton competed and um, Sir mm -hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle competed. Like there's, you know, when you think about these people that we know for other things that either they were legitimate athletes or they were, you know, like we said, just random people that got into Olympic games. Like there's, there really is an interesting history of people who we don't consider athletes, but we know on a name basis having competed in the games at some point. Yeah. I think for me, it was George Patton, um, you yeah. know, had things turned out differently. We may know him as a great medalist and not as a general. Um, he was a pentathlete. It's quite a good one. Um, you know, he qualified for the 1912 games. He finished in fifth place. Um, he thought he should have gotten higher in the shooting event, the shooting portion of the pentathlon. He claims that his shots were so accurate that they passed through the, the holes from <laughs> other competitors. Um, I'm not really sure that that's, we could uh, <laughs> quantify that. Um, <laughs> that's tough to verify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough to verify, but that was his claim. You know, he would have qualified for the 1916 games. Um, those games were canceled due to the First World War. Um, you know, the, things turn out differently. You know, he could be a multiple-time gold medalist. Um, and I think... I, I'm constantly amazed by sort of the... how impressive a lot of these people are. Um, you know, being able yeah. to not only be a top athlete in your field, but go on to do other things um, in a variety of industries and walks of life. You know, the dedication and sort of the the work ethic that it takes to sort of reach that stage, you know, it doesn't really go away when the Olympics are over and your playing days are over. It usually turns into something pretty impressive. Um, and I think that's what's really cool for me to sort of find as well is that, you know, these are just impressive people. Yeah. Um, you know, they're great athletes, obviously, but like it's one thing to be a great athlete. And we see this all the time. You see these amazing athletes and then they never live up to their potential. They're not whatever, for whatever reason. You know, these are people who are doing it at the, the biggest stage and uh, are obviously expending a lot of effort and know how to do that going forward. Yeah. And then they're good at other things, too. Like I struggle to do anything semi-competently, let alone multiple things at an elite level like these people right. did. Um, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, let's wrap this up with with the Tokyo Games, presumably coming up in like a month and a half, month, month and a half. What are the storylines that you'll be paying most closely attention to when and if these, I guess, quote unquote, 2020 games actually end up do happening? Yeah, you know, it's going to be weird um, for a number of reasons. I think I'm going to be really focused on obviously the safety. You know, there's going to be many athletes there who are vaccinated. There's going to be many athletes who aren't or are coming from countries that are sort of hotspots around the world. Um, it's going to be an Olympics with no fans. Um, it's going to be very quiet games. I think, you know, we're going to really focus on the competition. 
Um, it's not going to be like anything we've ever seen. You know, we're going to get all the pomp and circumstance that we normally get every few years, but there's going to be no fans. It's going to be held over the specter of disease. Um, you know, we're going to have to, we are going to hear reports most likely of somebody testing positive, of somebody getting sick, of Mm -hmm. a race having to be postponed or something like that. Um, you know, as much as I think, you know, I love the games. I obviously want them to happen. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting if, you know, you keep hearing all these reports, well, is this going to be a super spreader event? You know, I don't know, but that's an odd way to host a world event. And we're just sort of getting out of this in many countries In many countries we aren't, but you know, my concern is that something bad is going to happen. And I think, I don't know if it'll be worth it, but it seems very clear that it's going to happen. Um, despite the fact that a lot of people, especially in Japan, don't want it to happen. And I think yeah. if we can get the games off and something that resembles the games, I think that's a victory. Um, and if we can keep as many people safe as possible, that's obviously, you know, that's really what I think that will, to me, be a success. It won't be like, well, the Americans won the most medals or whoever. It's like, did we do this safely and smartly? Yeah. Well, uh, this is uh, Total Olympics is a great way for people to get um, primed for it. We will obviously have links to where people can purchase the book um, in the show notes and in the article version of this podcast. But like I loved it. Like I like I said, as somebody who has a, a bookshelf full of reference books, whether they are sporting or otherwise, like I love this. This fits perfectly. And uh, I'm really glad that I got a chance to talk to you about it, Jeremy. I really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land in conversation. Also, thank you, of course, to Jeremy Fuchs. We will have a link to where you can buy Total Olympics in the show notes and at landgrantholyland.com. If you are finding this episode on the aforementioned website, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are knocking out nearly an episode every weekday with varying voices, perspectives, and topics that you won't find anywhere else in the Ohio State podcasting universe. And we have some more surprises and additions planned for the coming weeks and months. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33, and you can find me at BWWMatt. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon, and as always, go Bucks.